0: Apple cider, picturesque autumn colors, migrating raptors, and crisp fall days are emblematic of September in mid-Michigan. Now there's one more reason to plan your fall trip to the Great Lakes State. Birders of all ages and abilities are invited to Midland, Michigan for the inaugural Whiting Forest of Dow Gardens Birding Festival. This three-day event runs September 19th through the 21st and features art, photography, and writing workshops led by such birding luminaries as Catherine Hamilton and David Sibley. Birding trips include world-class sites such as Nanqueen Point Wildlife Area and Shiawassee National Wildlife Refuge, where waterfowl, raptor, and songbird migration will be in full swing. Early bird registration runs through August 1st. For more information and to register, please visit DowGardens.org or visit the link in our show notes.
1: Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and at the time of this publication, of this podcast's release, I am in Costa Rica living it up with a bunch of young birders and the fantastic Eva Matthews of Hog Island Audubon. And while I cannot be certain since I'm recording this the day before I leave, I'm pretty sure that it's gonna be great. Even if it rains, as it does in Costa Rica this time of year, But I can talk a bit about a recent trip I just got back from. Last week, I had the pleasure of exploring Newfoundland with bird social media rock stars Nick Lund of The Birdist, Jason Ward of Birds of North America, and the ABA's own Birding Magazine editor, Ted Floyd, all of whom, all, have been guests on the American Birding Podcast in the past. It was cool. That was sort of a reunion. I'm just going to chalk that up to the fact that I've been very good about getting guests who are movers and shakers in the birding community, but it was actually a lot of fun to get in the field with people that I'd only chatted with, uh, except for Ted. I'd been out with Ted before. We were hosted by Destination St. John's and longtime Newfoundland bird guide Jared Clark, who you can find at Bird the Rock. He is exceptional. We pretty much took over bird social media for a few days there. So if you want to get a look at some of the sights and sounds of beautiful Newfoundland, you can check out the various social media accounts of Nick, Jason, Ted, Jared, and me. I will have more on this trip in an upcoming episode. And we'll hear from Nick and Jason as well about it. Uh, For all of us, this was a first visit to Newfoundland and for a couple, myself included, it was a first visit even to Canada. So I was really happy to knock that off my bucket list finally. Uh, So I have travel, on my mind, and I'm going to have some short thoughts about the trials and tribulations of birding travel at the end of the show. Or at least my birding travel may or may not apply to you. But first, Birding Magazine editor and frequent guest Ted Floyd is here to talk not about Newfoundland, but about birding experience and where it fails. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs>
0: This is your rare bird focus for the middle of July, 2019. The birding world has been rocked by the discovery of an Antillean palm swift on Grassy Key in Monroe County, Florida. This is the second ABA record, and the first in more than 40 years. Interestingly enough, that bird also showed up in mid-July. It's rather surprising that this is only the second record of the species, especially given how common it is, just over the Straits of Florida in Cuba. For an aerial bird, Antillean Palm Swift has a bit of a reputation as a homebody. Though populations in Jamaica and Hispaniola are evidently identifiable in the field, Cuba does seem like the most likely source for this bird, both logistically and taking plumage into account. This week also saw the passage of Hurricane Barry, which formed in the Gulf of Mexico and pushed inland from the Florida Panhandle. Tennessee was the recipient of the most noteworthy storm birds, starting with the discovery of an American flamingo in Lake County the days before the storm. There has been some suggestion that this bird might have been the individual that was hanging out at St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge in the Florida Panhandle. That same bird evidently turned up across the Mississippi River in Missouri, furnishing the rare double first for both states. That was not all that Tennessee birders turned up. That state's first record of sandwich turn was also blown in, along with Tennessee's fifth magnificent frigate bird, its sixth black skimmer, its seventh royal turn, and a great shearwater for a cherry on top, which I don't know exactly how many records of that species have been in Tennessee, but it's likely not very many. Kentucky also had a great share water, its second in the wake of the storm. And all of that excitement sort of hid the fact that the ABA's fourth record of common redshank was seen at St. Vincent's on the Avalon Peninsula of Newfoundland this week. All previous records of this species have come from that province. This was unfortunately a one-day wonder. This has been a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For more, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning, and to hear about rare birds as soon as they appear, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert.
1: I'm joined once again by Burning Editor Ted Floyd to mull over issues of importance in the Burning World. Uh, I first want to thank you for joining me on such short notice. Uh, Listeners may not realize how close we were to not having a podcast at all this week. The uh, interview that I had originally planned to run was on a laptop that I left on an Airplane, Uh, you know that is in the hands of Air Canada, (laughs) the the lost and found people right now. (laughs) But the uh, the publication of this podcast this week was definitely up in the air. Enter Ted Floyd, who graciously agreed to discuss something that we kind of brought up in the van while we were both in Canada last week. The question of whether expertise is always a good thing, at least you know when it comes to promoting birding. Uh, Ted, uh, thanks for joining me. I hope your travels were less. Uh, taxing than mine were,
2: <laughs> or, or taxiing on the runway. Taxiing, but, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, actually, the so. things were a, a bit less dramatic for me than they were for you. And also, from what I gather, for for Nick Lund, who had an adventure of his own, <laughs> winding right. up overnight yeah. in a totally different province from the one he was supposed to be yes. in.
1: <laughs> Easy to get into Canada, hard to get uh, out. Evidently,
2: yes. All right. Well, here we are back in the US. Yeah, today. so
1: you know. Let's let's lay out the groundwork for sort of what we're talking about. Uh, this is a phenomenon that, that you have noticed and I have sort of thought about as well, uh, wherein highly experienced birders are not always great at engaging with novice birders or potential birders in a way in which they need or is most helpful to them. Is that correct?
2: Yes, but with a qualifier, I want to say that sure. I am a huge fan of acquiring uh, experience and being yes. uh, an expert. Uh, in some ways, even I know it's sort of a word that we're, has fallen into disfavor in the, the recent uh, perhaps political climate, but but being an elite birder, uh, ha- having that experience, uh, having that expertise is, is wonderful. I exhort yeah. everybody to, to, if they are thus inclined to, to that level of attainment. Mm-hmm. However, then there's the question of what you do with it and how you uh, preach the gospel of birding.
1: Yes, yeah. So, so why do you think this is? Do you think that um, do, do people who are at that, you know, that level, I should say, of burning, and, and that's you know, assuming that not everyone gets there or even wants to get there, honestly, um, do you think that they are sort of used to talking to each other and not necessarily talking to people who are at their position decades ago?
2: It's funny. I'm not usually inclined to yes, no answer to questions, but I'll just give you <laughs> sort of a, an unqualified sure. yes. I think that's the, the heart and soul of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think that that's like a, a fundamentally different skill than being
1: like a great field birder?
2: Yes. And I also ought to, ought to say that I think it applies to probably every activity or undertaking in which, you know, one aspires to attain some level of, uh, you know, I keep going back to that word, expertise, advancement, experience, mm-hmm. whatever it is. I, I suspect that if we were talking about uh, playing you know, poker or chess at a high level or being a musician or or an artist that the same sorts of problems with uh, terminology and jargon and just assumptions uh, about uh, how one goes about their business as, again, an artist, an athlete, a birder. Uh, I think that probably um, interferes with uh, communication and outreach across the board.
1: Yeah. Where do you think that this manifests most of all? Like, what is a good example of this happening, of
2: where this happens? In, In the realm of birding. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I'll just go sort of go for the jugular and, <laughs> and talk about terminology. I, I go back so often to something that Rick Wright has said about you know how birding is this very verbal undertaking. Um, birding is full of words, terminology, yes. uh, jargon, and and I think that that really can undermine. Getting people excited ab- about birding. Uh, you and I talked a little bit at the time, you know, during our time together up and up in, up in uh, Newfoundland about um, the, the phenomenon of molt. Uh, so so molts and, and plumages, yeah. which you know, I, as far as I can tell, very few birders. You know, I, I don't want to say they don't understand, but they don't have an interest in it. And I think that the terminology is is a large part of the problem. I'll, I'll just you know t- toss a single example at you here because it, it involves y- y- yours truly. And I, just for the um, maybe sort of perspective, I, I'll just let you all know that – so I started with the moults and plumages thing really early in life. I had the uh, unusual good fortune as a as a high school student of mentoring under Ken Parks, who wrote the book, oh, <laughs> or, or, or well, wrote the book, yeah, wrote the monograph, right, 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 on on, on on moults. So I, I quickly became interested. And I have to be honest with you for I don't want to say for weeks or months, but actually for years. I was completely flummoxed by the words of basic and alternate. And, and I'm starting to use some terminology here, but just for, for the rest of our listeners, um, these refer to two different plumages or two different ways that many birds look right. during the course of the year. So the problem is that if I'm just using regular, standard, everyday vernacular English, your basic bird is going to be the one that you're familiar with. So to me, your basic scarlet tanager is this gloriously red and black bird, or your basic indigo bunting is this, you know, you know, just searingly beautiful blue bird. But actually, it's completely the other way around. We use the word right. basic to describe the, the dull plumage and alternate to describe the bright plumage. And... I totally get that like the 250 or 300 people who are into this stuff are really familiar with that terminology and it's really, really ingrained for them. And, and I can mm-hmm. understand why it would be disruptive to their own undertakings to switch that terminology. But, and I get some pushback on this, but I would actually start over with malt terminology just invent brand mm-hmm. new words. And, and let's just say we want to use the words basic and alternate. I'm not necessarily proposing that. I would say that your really bright birds, the ones you're familiar with, are your basic birds. And the ones that are in a different plumage are your, your alternate words. And, you know, as you and I discussed on the van and elsewhere, um, I sure get pushback. Um, yeah. People who are in the know just, they really get. Uh, uh, attached to names. And it just I know I'm kind of yeah. go off on this, but just one last anecdote. I can't remember if you and I talked about this or not, but I saw a really good essay a little while ago, and this is a sports metaphor, but uh, on why it is that some people are so passionately resistant to the idea of changing the name of the professional football team that plays in Washington, D.C. It's a, like, a really dumb nickname, and it's also an offensive yeah. nickname. And like, what is it that's so important about keeping that name? I don't know. Like, let's have a... Awesome bird name like the Washington peregrines, right? or, or, or or you know the I don't know Washington cheetahs or something like that. And you know, so people who grow up with a name, who are familiar with and accustomed to a certain terminology, become really wedded to it. And I think they forget about. And, and by the way, I keep saying they. You know, I, this applies to me and, and probably to you as well. But um, mm-hmm. we, we become really comfortable with something that is probably uncomfortable for a lot of other people.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned basic and alternate as being confusing and, and that's absolutely true. And that's before we even get into the whole juvenile, juvenile yeah. conundrum that has, you know, I, I don't know. I've never actually seen that or very rarely, I should say, have seen that sort of employed as a learning opportunity. It's more of a, oh, you got it wrong. It's juvenile is the, the I, I can't even do it. Juvenile is the plumage and juvenile is the bird. Is that right? <laughs>
2: So it used to be that way. This is a uh, little success <laughs> see, story for the American Birding Association. So uh, through go. the efforts of, uh, in particular, a certain editor, but but although other uh, uh, co-conspirators at Birding Magazine, uh, that old word juvenile al is actually mm-hmm. now um, sort of officially abandoned, at least in the American yeah, archaeological exactly literature. So. so if you go to um, uh, the scientific literature of Western birds or uh, the awk, or something, you'll actually just see the one word juvenile. So that, I mean that's a, a little. Victory, but I you know I think we're moving in that um, direction. Hey, I, you, you said just something a moment ago that sort of pressed a button of mine. Uh, I talked about you, you, or you implied this sort of like you got it wrong. This this gotcha uh, mentality, and I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick anecdote there that gets at this bigger question of you know who the heck we're trying to communicate to. So I'm um, right. years ago I was in a uh, sort of lecture discussion with a uh, incredibly brilliant and um, prominent and 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 uh, very uh, creative uh, expert on molt and Going say who he or she is, but many people may even figure this out. And uh, the, the, the question arose um, you know, c- can you define the word molt? And uh, just so, so we're backing up before basic and plumage, certainly not getting into those other fancy words like juvenile, I, juvenile, just yes. the word molt. And nobody answered the question. And since I just delight in raising my hand and blurting things out, whether it's right or wrong, I just raised my hand and, sure, and sure. I, I define molt as um, the loss of feathers. And the, uh, the person organizing this workshop you know, said, no, you're wrong. You're completely wrong. You're 180 <laughs> degrees wrong. Uh, you, the, that molt is the feather growth. And I thought to myself, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, of yeah <laughs> well, yeah. So, so actually, I, hang on a second. I just want to look something up on Google, actually, my search bar here. So, okay, here we go. So molt, definition of an animal to shed old feathers, hair, or skin – or an old shell to make way for a new growth. So actually, according to standard American 21st century vernacular English, I'm completely right. <laughs> a loss, right, <laughs> to, not the growth, yeah. is the loss of feathers. It's not the growth yep. of feathers. And when we, when we use terminology that's, you know, completely the opposite of what everybody expects it, it to be. This is, it's Orwellian. You know, we're just changing the meaning of words. You know, Orwellian, it's also, it reminds me of theology. You know, Many the- theologians will use these incredibly obfuscatory terms like uh, mm-hmm. infralapsarianism and, and, and dispensational pre-millennialism. They refer to these incredibly simple concepts, but like nobody can understand right. them. And s- same thing with the word molt. You know, in plain English, to molt a feather is to lose a feather, not to grow. Yeah. Are
1: you are you familiar with the concept of gatekeeping? Have oh, you heard well, that? Well,
2: in a broad cultural sense, for for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's
1: essentially what this is. You know, for people who may not be aware of it, it's uh, a term that was is very popularly used in like. Nerd culture of which bird is probably birds are probably a subset of that, but um, essentially, people who are interested in let's say comic books for a very long time might have a uh, a negative view of people who are only interested in the movie versions of those comic books as they're as if their enjoyment of that medium is somehow not authentic compared to the enjoyment of people who have been uh, around it for a very long time. And sometimes it feels like these words, these terms can be used as a sort of gatekeeping. You know, preventing people from being engaged, involved in the birding community because they are not familiar with the jargon. Do you think that I'm making, do you think that I'm completely off base here? Or is that something that resonates? It,
2: it totally resonates. And again, maybe sort of in a weak defense of <laughs> birding, I would say that this sure. sure applies in other realms as well as we mm-hmm. discussed in. Um, in, uh, in in Newfoundland, uh, it turned out all, all four of us, uh, all five of us, actually uh, in that sort of our tight little group there were, uh, or still are, uh, ardent American baseball fans. And you know right. there is this kind of you know inside baseball, you know go for the jargon and you know the, the rest of the world, you know well don't don't worry about them. And it, it doesn't help the cause uh, in in music as as well. Uh, and and my particular focus is, is classical music. I, I certainly pick up on some, uh, some some gatekeeping, a lot of it actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I really applaud the effort of um, one person who comes to mind is the, the British composer David Bruce, who has this really successful YouTube site. Uh, by the way, David Bruce is a, a very you know high-power, high-octane, sophisticated uh, composer of abstract music. But his YouTube videos can be um, accessed by anybody because he just speaks plain language and uses uncomplicated terminology. And he's also very savvy with... Um, Well, with making videos that employ modern memes, for example. Memes are all over his YouTube videos, and and they communicate information very effectively.
1: Do you think that social media can be a remedy for this sort of thing? Uh, One of the things that has amazed me about the rise of the internet and birding is that it's been this amazing democratization of bird information. All this stuff is available to just about anybody. You don't have to go through uh, a mentor-mentee relationship. We talked about this a little bit uh, at the uh, Biggest Week in American Birding. Uh, Live thing about how, uh, you know, almost like followers on social media can be, can lead you into the birding world in a way that maybe in the past, a local bird club would have done that. Um, Do you see that as potentially a a remedy uh, to this sort of jargon issue?
2: It's funny to hear you ask that question. I think both you and I have been. guilty a little bit of maybe uh, sort of deliberately um, employing uh, so- social media for the, the cause of uh, sort of social <laughs> engineering and, and field ornithology and burning. And, birding. and <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm aware of your ongoing campaign. I won't call it a stealth campaign because it's right out there in the yeah. open, but to um, – uh, to bring about you know some some reflection some some change uh, eventually about the um, proliferation of what we call honorific names in sure, American yeah. a, uh, so these are basically the yeah. apostrophe s names you know Swainson so, Thrush yeah. and um, yeah so yeah so if, if you don't
1: if, if listeners don't know uh, on my Twitter feed my personal Twitter feed which is at n c underscore eight I've been going through the ABA checklist of honorific names and suggesting alternate names those birds based on their oh, all sorts of things their latin names their field marks their locations things like that
2: yeah yeah and and to be clear uh, nate's talking about the the standard english names, so we're not really going Correct. anywhere near the uh the scientific names at all yeah. but i mean the, the best you can say for an honorific name I and mean, the, the best is that it's neutral it's useless it conveys no yeah, descriptive true. information about the bird at all you, c- you can actually take it um, a step further and say that the names are I mean, it's not offensive i, I mean very kind of quaint-looking and, and old-fashioned, you know, how do they speak to somebody in the 21st century? And, you know, I've, I've mm-hmm. been aware of the the many name changes you've been proposing. And, you know, most of them look fine to me, but, you know, like, practically every bird that has an honorific name c- could get a better name. And I you I'm sort of on mm-hmm. the spot right now here, but um, I, we saw Wilson's warbler uh, uh, out there, yeah. and you know why not call that the black-capped warbler? I mean, it's not an inc- yeah. it's not an incredibly evocative name, but it describes. Sure, sure, accurate. Well. Yeah. Um, you know, we were a bit out of range for uh, Bicknell's thrush, but like, what does Bicknell mean? Why don't you maybe call that the the, the Adirondack thrush? And that's not a perfect mm, like name that. because the bird also occurs, at, you know, outside the Adirondacks. But certainly, you can go to the Adirondacks and and see Bicknell's thrushes. So, I mean, if I had had more time and wasn't sort of thinking about this, you know, on the fly right now, kind of just like you're doing on Twitter. I, I suspect I could come up with superior names for practically every, uh, s- s- uh, what well, not, pseudonymic, but a patronymic um, bird name mm-hmm. uh, in in the United States and Canada, and to some extent Mexico and the rest of of the, the Americas. I might have to look at a field guide for a few of those. But yeah, that's that's just an example of whenever I explore it, sort of back channel with people who've been in the business like me for decades it's gatekeeping just as you said well mm-hmm. you know this is the name i grew up with this is the name i'm familiar with this mm-hmm. is the name that was handed down to my fathers and my forefathers that language isn't exactly <laughs> used but it is sort of what i what i pick up on and i just keep going back to this idea of uh, you know sort of plain english for plain people which doesn't in any way you know diminish the role for expertise and attainment of skill and achievement and advancement but it also makes birding accessible to many more people
1: do you think people who write field guides or who write bird-related um, anything, any any media, have an obligation to sort of change this? I know that when I wrote... So we, are, we have both written ABA field guides to our respective states. And I know that when I wrote mine, I was very conscious about not using... A lot of words like supercilium or coverts or uh, tertials or rectrices or any of those, you know, kind of bird feathered names that uh, can come off as very jargony. Instead, I would try to use things like eyebrow and uh, undertail and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that that helps or do you think that we're you know almost oversimplifying things?
2: Yeah, I think it helps uh, greatly and I don't think it's oversimplifying. Let's use your example of um, supercilium versus mm. eyebrow. So they mean the same thing. I think to you know somebody who knows what the word supercilia means, it's essentially the bird's eyebrow. I mean, I get it, it's not a human eyebrow with, you know, hairs and mascara or whatever you put in human eyebrows, but it, it's the you know, patch of feathers above the eye, the word Totally works, and it has a broader in- meaning and a broader engagement. Um, I think you and I talked, um, again, i talked to a lot of people in the past week, but I think we talked about the, um, the great uh, nuclear physicist, Ernest Rutherford, who uh, mm-hmm. made this great quip um, fairly late in his career about uh, the importance of communicating broadly. And I'm going to do disservice to it right now because I'm not in front of <laughs> Google or anything like that. But the, the, the gist of his quote was this. Um, if you can't explain your physics to a barmaid, then it's probably not very good physics. <laughs> and that's a really um, powerful little quip there, because he's saying two things. On the one hand, he's saying it's important to be able to explain, in his case, nuclear physics to a barmaid. But on the other hand, he's also saying that um, you yourself don't. Really know what you're doing if you can't explain it in right. a way that a lot of people can understand it. So it's really easy, you know. We, um, I remember uh, Jason Ward and I started talking about um, uh, flight calls of, of birds and and, and high pitch songs. You know, I mean, he and I are both quite you know steeped in this terminology. So you know, we instantly started talking about things like modulation and kilohertz. But the thing about Jason, for sure, and I hope for myself, is that we can also. Turn off that terminology. Sort of do like you know general public code switching, and and convey mm-hmm. the same idea more simply. So instead of saying nine thousand hertz, why not just say a high pitched? It means the exact same thing. Or instead of saying modulated, why not say buzzy? You, you know th- those are words that anybody yeah. can, can understand. And I think that the ability to understand that nine thousand hertz means high pitched or that modulated means buzzy. Uh, not only says um, something about the audience you're reaching out to, but it also says something about uh, your own ability to understand the subject matter.
1: Mm. That's interesting you bring that up because um, when I think about people who are like exceptionally, almost preternaturally good at something, be it uh, birding or music or athletics or whatever, there is a certain level at which, you know, you can do something without necessarily thinking about it. You can improvise on an instrument without thinking about it. You can perform some sort of... uh, Athletic move without thinking about it, you can identify a bird at three hundred meters above you by its flight call that you can barely hear without thinking about it but there's another level an ex- a next step that is able to explain why that makes sense to you or why you did that thing in that moment in a way that um in a way that makes sense to maybe a a regular person like like the musician that you you talked about the person who talks about you know. Classical music in a way that makes sense to a layman. I, I'm also off the top of my head, another sports analogy. So I apologize to people <laughs> who are listening who don't like him. But um, there are interviews with uh, LeBron James, um, obviously an amazing basketball player, in the way he is able to like catalog an entire game in his head and explain what happened at any moment, any moment in that game after it happened uh, in a way that like a normal person would not be able to do. Um, I find that really fascinating. It's almost like an extra expertise it, it
2: is and i also think it maybe recapping an old point here it, it just speaks to a um as you said an extra expertise but just sort of a um, i don't know like a uh, an attainment or an achievement i you, yeah. you went back to baseball I you, i'm gonna go back to, to, to nuclear physics for, for a moment here but a, <laughs> another great nuclear physicist um, enrico fermi when he um arrived at the university of chicago he had this really unusual demand it wasn't you know a particle collider in his lab or you know, a high salary. He, he demanded that he be allowed to teach a freshman physics every semester uh, yeah. because he said nothing made him smarter and nothing kept him sharper than teaching physics to introductory level 18-year-olds. And I, I think something you may know, Nate, but probably a lot of the, the listeners don't know is um, I'm a volunteer sixth grade math teacher, and I, And I love it I mean I, I I can talk high level math, but boy trying to teach it to people who don't know it, but who are really smart and are eager to learn and want mm-hmm. to uh, attain the sort of level of just by virtue of my experience, you know the level of sort of mathematical wherewithal that I have uh, makes it a really um a challenging proposition. So I, I I, have to say, I I actually prefer the, the company of beginning birders more than anybody else. And it's not, I'm not being, you know, this isn't tokenism or I'm not being QT. Um, mm-hmm. I hope I'm not, I'm not being condescending or paternalistic. I just find that I'm, I'm sharper. I, I'm more on my game. I'm, I'm more yeah. aware in the presence of people who are interested and engaged and intelligent, but don't know a lot uh, than when I am in the presence of people like, you know, well, the those of us who were out in newfoundland who like know everything so i i I, I enjoyed i totally enjoyed being with all of you all but i I think you would probably second me on this i I think some of the most stimulating conversations for me were at dinner when we met with um Mm -hmm. folks in the tourism industry in newfoundland who you know clearly you know were. Bright, intelligent, and competent, and in some ways are much more worldly than any of the, the birdwatchers of that group were. But uh, you know, trying to explain to them, you know, why we get fired up about seeing shearwaters and mers and, and so forth um, is is a really yeah. engaging challenge for me.
1: Yeah, there's something to be said for being in, in out in the field with people like like the people we were with this past week, who are you know all eyes out. They all know how to find birds, know how to look birds, and identify the birds that they see. And and being with people that are novices i mean it is it is a different experience i can't say whether i I necessarily enjoy one more than the other because they're both they're they're quite different. But you know I enjoy them both for different reasons, and I think that they both make me a better. friend yeah,
2: and now that you say that, I wish I'd said that as well because I yeah I did, I did <laughs> well I did sort of present it as an either or, and 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 actually I think that the best approach would would be to do both. I would hold. I, I mean, um, I learned technical <laughs> stuff from you and yeah. from um, yeah. Jared and, and Jason and Nick that I you know wouldn't have learned in a, a different context. So so that that's absolutely uh, the, the case. But then sort of turning around. And and uh, translating or interpreting that information for a broader audience is um, is a very rewarding challenge as well. Yeah.
1: At this point in birding, do you think it is is more important to be a great communicator or, or a great birder? Or do you think that there's a place for both?
2: Yeah, I'm going to give you another balanced uh, <laughs> response here. <laughs> well, I guess, I,
1: honestly, I, I was probably fishing for that a little bit, but yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I'd say both. And I think that sometimes when somebody's a great communicator, we have this tendency to forget that they might also be really great birders. And an example that comes to mind is the the late Bill Thompson, who I think everybody would agree was a superb communicator. And I think we sometimes forget that he was a really skilled birder as as well because well since he was so good at communicating how could he also have been a a, a good birder and you know think of some of the books he wrote uh bird watching for dummies uh like I, i'm yeah. going to botch the title here but like uh birding for young people or a young person's guide to birding I, i'm not sure i had the title wrong there you know those were books that um are profitably consulted by advanced you know birders um and bill thompson you know, in addition to being a great communicator, was a really, really good, as we would say, field birder. And it's a pity mm-hmm. that um, I think we tend to go sort of one way or the other there. So, the, the ability to, to do both, to to acquire knowledge, to possess understanding, to attain uh, experience, even sort of, you know, expertise um, are things not to be uh, laughed at. But, you um, the ability then to turn it around and interpret it and communicate it for broad audience is a, a rare uh, ability indeed.
1: Do you think we should make people more comfortable with these sort of more complicated terms, assuming that they even want to do that? that? I mean that's always been my question. like do people want to get into the jargon? Is it useful for them to know it? I guess it, it sort of is because there's a lot of there's a lot of references out there that use it instead of you know more simplified language, but um, Do you you think people need to know that?
2: You know, I think we can go in in both directions there. And again, I'm I'm just being too, uh, too, uh, too, uh, (laughs) uh, all my responses here. So, you know, I, I know what the word supercilia means. I even know the Latin root and how the word came to have the meaning that it does. But what's wrong with saying eyebrow? And if you have a, 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 Parts of a bird, you know, diagram in the beginning of your field guide, and you just point to that little patch above the eye, and it says eyebrow. I, I don't really see a problem there. Um, if you want to preserve the terminology in technical publications, that's that's okay mm-hmm. with me. And and by the way, I've been in the situation. I suspect you have too, where you've um, found yourself communicating the exact same result to different audiences. So uh, there have mm-hmm. been times when I've presented to, let's say, a um, seminar at a university but then in the same visit sometimes even the same day but you know often the next day i'll give sort of the same talk to a bird club it's the same content but the the language changes a little bit so you know for the uh the talk to the bird club i might take out the uh frankly kind of boring slides with graphs and statistical values (laughs) but but for the talk to the uh to the university audience i might take out the uh the the sections on identification and status and distribution so it's it's critical to know your audience and and their needs perceived or otherwise uh really are out there and i think it's up to the communicator to know what audience they're talking to
1: ted thank you so much for for joining me on such short notice Uh, i know i can always count on you to uh to chat with me about just about anything uh ted floyd regular contributor to the podcast to the aba Birding Magazine editor, all the things. Uh, Ted, thanks so much. It was great talking to you.
2: Thanks again for having me. And again, if it involves apostrophe S or molt, you know I'm always your man.
1: (laughs) That's always. uh, You're the first one I think of. I had an exceptional time in Newfoundland last week. Extraordinary. Tens of thousands of puffins, the third largest northern gannet breeding colony on the planet, Finally visiting all the great rarity, hot spots that I'd heard about and talked about on this podcast. Birding with some great folks in a beautiful place is always incredible. And Newfoundland is an extraordinary destination that should be on the bucket list of every birder. It's not nearly as far away as you'd think it is. Much of the best birding is only an hour or so from the city of St. John's, so you can't beat it for convenience. But this isn't about Newfoundland, or at least not yet. I'll have something about that in a future episode. This is about travel which is an altogether more mundane topic. So like many birders, I travel with a lot of stuff. Cameras, optics, increasingly various electronics that allow me to record things in the field, along with the miles of cords that connect all these things together, and of course, my laptop. I have a love hate relationship with this laptop, but it, it connects me to the work I need to do with the ABA, like this podcast and the ABA blog. But it's this thing I have to haul around and potentially lose, which is exactly what happened. See, I pulled out my laptop on the airplane to finish up the weekly rare bird post on the ABA blog. Usually I don't do this. So I finished. I got released as far as I'm going to get without internet. I closed the top and I fell asleep. As we're descending into Newark, the flight attendant tells me that I need to put my tray table up, put away my laptop, and like a sleep-deprived moron, which is what I was at the time, I decided not to pull out my overstuffed camera bag and just slotted that laptop in the seat pocket in front of me, thinking I would put it away when I pulled out my bag to deplane. No reason to take out that bag more times than I need to. I can tell you I did not do this. I did not realize that I had left this crucial piece of equipment, upon which was the interview that was supposed to run on the podcast this week. Neatly edited and all ready to go. I did not realize it until I got to the other side of the Newark airport and had to go through security for the third time on this trip. When I got to the trays where you have to pull out your laptop. It was not there. Not where it was supposed to be. At which point I freaked out a little. And because my flight home was canceled and the next leg was delayed and I only had a short amount of time to get on my connecting flight, which of course ended up sitting on the tarmac for an hour and a half, and not to wait in the long customer service line to tell someone immediately, man, this is, this is even stressful recounting it. Thankfully, most of my really important stuff is on an external hard drive that was still at home, so it's not the end of the world, but it's still very annoying Thanks to the ABA for procuring me a replacement in short order so I could get Ted on the horn and get something interesting out for next week. So things are not as bad as they could be and certainly not as bad as they felt 48 hours ago. Folks, there is a lesson here. The main one is don't be an idiot like me. But the second one is that I am not sure that the profusion of stuff we carry around to go birding is a good thing. I totally understand why we do it. So I'm off to Costa Rica and hopefully my laptop will remain in my possession. And if anyone from Air Canada is listening, send me a message because I'd like to speak to someone who isn't a computer. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization, and our lifeblood is you. If you want to help support this and the other free resources the ABA provides to the birding community, join us. We even offer e-memberships if you prefer to receive the publications online. You can get more information about all of that at aba.org join or aba.org slash e-member. Special shout-outs to Matthew Rhine of Silver Springs, Maryland, Catherine Gishwang of Pacifica, California, Jess Cosentino of Derry, New Hampshire, Scott Richardson of Berwick, Maine, Greg and Mary Beth Albrechtson of Spearfish, South Dakota, James Halsh of Bainbridge Island, Washington, Sarah Schmidt of Coopville, Washington, Mary Merle of Monona, Wisconsin, William Higgins of Springfield, Virginia, Jessica Lindall Parling of Vermontville, Michigan, and especially a special, special shout out to Paul Haley of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Paul's one of my birding friends here in North Carolina. I've known him for a very long time, and I finally... Finally convinced him to join the ABA. Thanks, Paul. I owe you a beer. We're in the middle of our nesting season. Appeal is so if you want to go above and beyond for the American Birding Association, you can make a donation at aba.org/gift. Donations of one hundred dollars or more will receive a special edition ABA fiftieth anniversary T-shirt with our cool fiftieth anniversary logo. You can see what it looks like at the aforementioned website. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast, Jeffrey Gordon, has turned off the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please stow your binoculars underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin and stop peering out your window for that additional county bird. They're all starlings anyway. If you're seated next to technical producer John Lowry, please read carefully the special instruction card located by your seat. If you do not wish to perform the functions described in the event of a misidentification of the photos he is editing on the flight, please ask an attendant to reseat you. Make sure your portable electronic devices are set to airplane mode, not trying to find local eBird hotspots using the eBird mobile app, as David Hartley and Greg Neese who provide additional help to the production of the podcast have been known to do. You can find us at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Ladies and gentlemen, as we start our descent, please make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full upright position and your eBird local checklist for your destination already downloaded. On behalf of the American Birding Association and the entire crew, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the podcast. We know you have a lot of options for your listening pleasure, and we're glad you chose us. We look forward to having you on board in the near future. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Netswick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.